Good afternoon. I'm pleased to bring uh, the subcommittee uh, together today with Senator Young for a hearing on a critical topic, U.S. policy towards India, and we're grateful to have with us today uh, a panel of one, but an august panel of one, Assistant Secretary Donald Liu. I'll introduce uh, our speaker in a moment, but we'll begin with uh, brief remarks from uh, both myself and Senator Young for information of the committee, to the extent anybody is listening online, readying to come here. We're going to keep this hearing going through the vote. Um, we'll try to switch off uh, to make sure that we make efficient use of all of our time. Um, the U.S.-India relationship arguably has never been stronger, and the United States is grateful to the people of India and to Prime Minister Modi for our growing friendship. Our relationship is growing for good reason. Five years from now, India will become the world's most populous country, home to about one out of every six people. It's already the world's sixth largest economy, and last year it was the world's fastest growing major economy. India possesses the world's second largest military, if you look at numbers of active personnel, second only to China. And during the global pandemic of the last two years, India's Biopharmaceutical industry has emerged as a key producer to the United States and the rest of the world of PPE, therapeutics, and vaccines. Having the world's most populous country be a democracy when so many other large and growing nations are not is clearly a great benefit to the United States. And that's why Democratic and Republican administrations over the course of the last several decades have worked to strengthen this relationship. For instance, the United States, through the four-nation partnership of the Quad has a growing and very important defense relationship with India to secure a free and open Indo-Pacific. India and the United States also work constructively on climate policy. While China was largely missing in action from the most recent climate summit, India made a significant pledge to become net zero by 2060. Our relationship with India, it's multi multifaceted, and it is rightly deepening across a number of critical fields. But as with many countries in the world, we have some important differences in the relationship that we need to work out. Most timely for today's hearing is India's position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where, frankly, many of my colleagues and I are puzzled by India's equivocation in the face of the biggest threat to democracy since World War II. At a time when democracies are closing ranks to condemn Russia's invasion, it is troubling, to say the least, to see India, the world's largest democracy, sitting on the sidelines. Now, I understand India has a history of non-alignment in foreign policy matters, but this is a unique moment that demands clear-eyed conviction about right and wrong, sovereignty and democracy. And I note India abstained on today's vote before the UN, while at the same time many countries um, that had previously uh, declared neutrality voted with us. We hope that India soon will get on the right side of history. I'm sure we'll also discuss uh, today India's recent purchase and acquisition of the Russian S-400 air defense system. We're in an active debate about whether CATSA sanctions for that purchase should be waived. I know the ranking member has a view on that, and I look forward to hearing the pros and cons and the options available from our witness today. And lastly, uh, we need to be able to talk honestly with India about the things that they can do to improve the health of their big, thriving, but still young democracy. We've got a lot of work to do 
here at home to strengthen American democracy, so we need to be a little careful about being too preachy these days, but India's Muslim minority continues to face discrimination and all too often violence, and Kashmir remains a crisis without any resolution on Prime Minister Modi's promise that the people of Kashmir will have a say in the region's future. With that, let me turn to Ranking Member Senator Young. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I thank the Assistant Secretary for appearing before the committee today. We're holding this hearing at an incredibly dynamic and volatile time. Our thoughts, of course, continue to be with the Ukrainian people who are suffering under an onslaught by Vladimir Putin's Russia. Unprovoked aggression by an authoritarian regime is doing something that the experts said was impossible in today's interconnected world. We're witnessing a ground war in Europe, the largest since World War II. This sobering reality must serve as an immediate wake-up call to the United States and our allies around the globe. First, that we live in a world where authoritarians in Moscow and Beijing are willing to impose their will on others through force. And second, and more worrisome, is that both governments seem to only respond to strength and hard power. These dynamics bring along the risk of a catastrophic escalation that we have not seen since the Cold War. It's important to maintain this, this perspective as we approach today's hearing, examining the critical importance of the bilateral relationship between the United States and India. Now, many have said that our interconnected economies make wars of the past unthinkable in today's age. What we're witnessing in Europe challenges this assertion to its core. Sadly, we must recognize that this same reality is also true in Asia. India has been and remains on the front lines of Chinese aggression with skirmishes breaking out on their northern border. They remain the only member of the Quad to see members of their armed forces die in direct combat with China's People Liberation Army. This reality, coupled with the fact that Indiana India has for decades relied upon Russian-made military equipment for their defensive needs, offers some important context for today's discussion. Again, let me be clear that Vladimir Putin remains a KGB thug who has invaded a peaceful democratic Ukraine. He must be held accountable for the atrocities occurring there. At the same time, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that the Chinese Communist Party is a regime hell-bent on creating vassal states and fundamentally remaking the globe to serve its interests. In this complex world, it's essential that we prioritize and work to build alliances with the unique challenges of Europe and Asia in mind. As such, I think it would be foolish and deeply short-sighted for the United States to harm our relationship with India over what is occurring in Ukraine. Rather, in today's hearing, I look forward to examining how we should encourage India to keep, continue deepening its ties with the Quad. As we do, we should be mindful of the fact that just a short time ago, India's traditional non-aligned posture made a partnership with like-minded allies to counter a nation like China almost unthinkable. Yet today, as a result of fighting along their northern border, the outbreak of COVID-19, and the global predatory behavior of the Chinese Communist Party, we've witnessed a dramatic shift in Delhi's position. This is a welcome shift, and we must encourage our friends in India to continue their wariness of Beijing while partnering with like-minded allies in the US, Japan, Australia, and elsewhere. 
Today, I look forward to hearing from the administration on how they are approaching this goal. I look forward to exploring in what areas we can deepen our cooperation with India and addressing how we can strengthen cooperation with India through things like intel sharing, cooperative logistics, and cooperative defense planning. How can we help India continue its shift away from dependence on Russian arms toward American-made equipment that will enhance our ability to work together? Secretary Liu, I believe that we've only scratched the surface in, in terms of what is possible, and I'm pleased that we're here to discuss such important uh, matters. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Young. It's now my privilege to welcome to the subcommittee Assistant Secretary Liu. He is the Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs. Prior to this assignment, Assistant Secretary Liu served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Kyrgyz Republic and the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Albania. Uh, Ambassador Liu uh, is a Foreign Service Officer with more than 30 years of U.S. government service. Uh, and so we thank you for being here today. We will, of course, include your full statement in the record. We'd ask you to summarize your remarks um, before we begin rounds of questions. Welcome to the committee. Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young, our relationship with India is one of the defining partnerships that will determine the security of Asia, of the United States, and of the world. It's a relationship that we have to get right, and the only way we're going to get it right is if the administration is working with the Congress. If you will allow me, I would like to share today our thinking on India-China relations, the future of the Quad, cooperation on counterterrorism, defense sales, and human rights and religious freedom in India. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of course, is foremost in all of our minds. The State Department continues to engage India closely to underscore the importance of a collective response in condemning Russia's invasion. Just as an increasingly provocative PRC is challenging the United States, it's also provoking India at every turn. India staged a boycott of the, uh, a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympic Games after the PRC selected a regiment commander responsible for the attack on the Indian border that resulted in the death of 20 Indian soldiers as one of its Olympic torchbearers. Beijing has also recently published new PRC maps reiterating claims to large swaths of territory in the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh and renaming India's cities with Chinese names. We remain committed to accelerating progress in our major defense partnership and strengthening India's capacity to deter PRC provocation through robust naval cooperation, enhanced information and intelligence sharing, and increased cooperation in emerging domains such as space and cyberspace. I joined uh, Secretary Blinken in Melbourne for the fourth um, Quad Ministerial last month. I was struck by how much the Quad is accomplishing uh, and the determination of all four Quad partners to support a free and open Indo-Pacific. The Quad is making huge strides in achieving our goal of delivering one billion doses of COVID-19 vaccine to the world. The U.S. International Development Finance Corporation has provided $50 million in long-term financing to an Indian pharmaceutical company to develop manufacturing capacity to produce at least one billion doses of vaccine by the end of this year. The Quad is also working together on maritime cooperation and security. We're sharing data on maritime domain awareness, fighting illegal fishing together, 
and our four countries have conducted complex and large-scale naval exercises in our annual Malabar exercise. We also share concerns with India about terrorism. With the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, both of our countries are concerned about the resurgence of terrorist groups operating there. We have worked to hold accountable terrorist groups responsible for the 2008 Mumbai terrorist attack that killed 166 people, including six Americans. Our cooperation over the past year has included meetings of the Counterterrorism Joint Working Group, the Quad Counterterrorism Tabletop Exercise, the Working Group on Homeland and Working Groups of the Homeland Security Dialogue. India is the world's second largest importer of defense technology. Over 22 years, U.S. defense sales to India have grown to over $20 billion, and India is considering purchasing an additional six P-8I maritime surveillance aircraft for $2.1 million. Since 2011, India has reduced its arms imports from Russia by 53% and increased its defense purchases from the United States and other partners, as well as increasing its own domestic production capability. India continues to report infiltration by militants into Jammu and Kashmir, although rates of infiltration have reduced markedly over the past two years. Since the 2019 Pulwama attack, which killed 40 Indian soldiers, and under pressure from the international community, Pakistan has taken positive steps to address cross-border terrorism. And we continue to encourage Pakistan to prosecute terrorist leaders and dismantle all terrorist groups. As the world's largest democracy, India has a vibrant civil society, a free media, and an independent judicial system. However, we are concerned about human rights challenges, including the lack of state assembly elections in Jammu and Kashmir and reports of ongoing human rights abuses. Similarly, across the country, we are closely monitoring reports of discrimination against Muslim communities and other religious minority groups, as well as limits on free speech and NGOs. It is critical that India's partners speak up when we witness troubling events, but that we also support India's democratic institutions, which are the country's key defense against the erosion of human rights. In conclusion, we see growing strategic convergence between the United States and India, I look forward to working with the Congress to push forward this indispensable relationship between our two great nations. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Secretary. Thank you for your testimony and for your service. Uh, I'll begin um, a round of uh, five-minute questions. Um, and let me start on this question of India's uh, dependence on Russian military equipment. This is a legacy dependence. Right? It predates a decision to integrate more fully with the United States and our military. But the reality is you still have the majority of its air force, submarines, its you know, main battle tank force using Russian equipment. Um, so let me just ask a simple question. What limits does that reality impose on our security cooperation with India? Senator, I, I um, thank you for that important question. It's a question that we're looking at very closely as the administration is looking at the broader question of whether to apply sanctions under CATSA or to uh, waive those sanctions. 
Uh, it is critical that with any partner that the United States is able to uh, assure itself that any defense technology that we share is sufficiently protected. And so we are in the process of trying to understand whether defense technology that we are sharing with India today can be adequately safeguarded uh, given India's historical re relationship with Russia and its defense sales. Uh, I have been working on India for almost three decades. Three decades ago, we could not have imagined selling anything to India on the defense side. Um, the amount and the sophistication of what today we are transferring to India is staggering. I mentioned the P-8I, Maritime Surveillance Aircraft. India is the first foreign partner to get that capability. And that capability will allow them to patrol the Indian Ocean and also to secure their land borders to make sure that they understand threats that are coming from Chinese uh, uh, opponents coming by land, but also Chinese submarines in the Indian Ocean. It's critical not only for India's security, I would argue it's critical for American security. I am of the belief that for every bullet, every radar, every fighter plane that we sell to India, that's one um, defense, piece of defense equipment that we will not have to field ourselves in Asia. Thank you. Uh, I think the integration of Indian security interests and U.S. security interests to the extent they now overlap in greater measure is one of the most important developments for U.S. security in the last two decades. Um, at the same time, we have to have eyes wide open that, well, much of this dependence comes from prior commitments. Even since CATSA has been passed, India has made decisions, in particular with the S-400, to continue to move forward on uh, integration with Russian partners, maybe in the wake of uh, the invasion of Ukraine, that may change. Um, I found your, your comments on a reduction in um, terrorist transit across the border over the last two years as uh, encouraging. Um, and I wanted to ask you to maybe go a little bit deeper with respect to the threats from these militant groups, whether it be LET or JEM, um, coming out of Afghanistan. What does the um, Taliban takeover of Afghanistan mean for India and India's security? Um, and what's India's uh, um, thought process around, you know, it, used, it, 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 it had a presence in Afghanistan, it, even though India is a developing nation, it was contributing to the redevelopment of Afghanistan. Um, how do our interests in, in, in Afghanistan overlap right now with Indian interests? We're obviously struggling with this question. Uh, of what to do with the Taliban, what to do with the humanitarian crisis, how to continue to track terrorist groups there. What's the potential overlap? Thank you. I, I see tremendous convergence in our interests uh, with respect to Afghanistan. As you mentioned, India has for 20 years been a key player there, invested heavily in society. As you may have seen, they've recently sent 50,000 um, metric tons of wheat as humanitarian assistance just at the same time that the EU and the United States and many other countries are stepping up to prevent uh, a collapse of the economy and humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. But the place that we share the most common interest is this question of the possibility that there could be emerging terrorist threats coming from Afghan territory. Uh, 
we are far away from Afghanistan, yet we have felt uh, terrorist, terrorism that has emanated from that soil. India is very close to Afghanistan and feels every day that the fall of Kabul is a turning point in um, their estimation of the threat uh, to, to India, but also to other partner countries within South Asia. On the subject you raised of Lashkar-e-Taiba and Jaish-e-Mohammed, um, we remain concerned that these organizations are present in Pakistan. As a result of uh, work that we have done with Pakistan, other partners have done with Pakistan, the Financial Action Task Force has done with Pakistan, we have seen real progress forward in um, prosecution of leaders of these groups, dismantling of some of these groups, but as you point out, these groups still remain, and we are working with Pakistan to encourage them to fully dismantle uh, and to prosecute members of these terrorist organizations. Great. We've got plenty of other questions. I'll save them for a second round. Turn it over to Senator Young. Yeah, uh, Assistant Secretary, uh, each of us has, has spent a little bit of time discussing uh, the Russian-Indian defense partnership. I, I know successive Indian governments have valued uh, Russian-produced weapon systems. Uh, India continues to have all manner of Russian legacy systems, uh, and as they acquire new weapons, they, they can't immediately sever uh, their, their current uh, uh, their, their weapon supply from, from uh, what are operable systems, interoperable systems. So it's going to take some time to wean themselves off of uh, Russian, the Russian uh, defense industrial sector. But can you help me contextualize? Can you put a little meat on the bones of that defense relationship between India and Russia and explain from the Indian standpoint why that relationship is so important uh, to uh, the government and their people? Uh, um, interesting question. I, I um, certainly think um, India is able to articulate its own relationship with Russia far better than I could. As an American diplomat who spent many years in India, I would say that um, that is a relationship of the Cold War, just as our uh, very deep relationship and alliance with Pakistan was so critical uh, during the Cold War years. And yet, as we emerged from the Cold War 30 years ago, uh, a new India emerged, a new Pakistan emerged, a new Russia has been created. Uh, yes, it's true that much of India's um, land-based forces, some of its navy, a few of its aircraft, are um, either so of Soviet origin or now of Russian origin. But I would argue of the major defense systems acquired over the past decade, the majority of the major defense systems have been American, European, Israeli, they've come from a diversity of countries. So let me pick up on that Please. thread. Uh, I asked the original question out of uh, what H.R. McMaster calls strategic empathy, trying to understand uh, your, your allies, your adversaries, and, and uh, everyone in between, as opposed to uh, what we occasionally engage in, which is strategic narcissism, trying to impose our vision of the world on on uh, other countries and, and leaders. So uh, <clears throat> given, given the predicate you've laid, what are the Biden administration's priorities for further advancing 
the position of the U.S. and uh, our allies as alternative uh, suppliers to India's future defense needs. Let me um, say to begin with that it's my view that it's going to be very hard for anyone to buy major weapon systems from Moscow in the coming months and years, given the sweeping financial sanctions that the administration, with the support of Congress, has leveled on Rus the Russian banking system. So I I'm sorry, could you? Please. <laughs> we're, we're going to be voting momentarily, and, and uh, my, my team's doing its job, which is whispering into my ear. Uh, but it, it happened to occur at a moment of time in which you were covering something that I need to get clarity on. So in coming months, perhaps years, it won't be very uh, easy for governments to procure weapon systems from Russia. I could imagine a situation where their defense export industry will become increasingly important to the Russian government. So uh, maybe you could walk me through If you the don't challenge. have a banking system, it's very hard for other countries to pay millions of dollars in rubles Understood. or in yen or in euros to pay for these defense systems. So I, I do think many countries that have these legacy Russian systems will be worried. Not only worried about buying new fancy systems like the S-400, but worried just about getting ammunition, spare parts, basic supplies for Russian legacy systems that they already have. I would guess that India is one of those countries worried about that. It does, in my opinion, provide an opportunity. Opportunity for the United States, opportunity for Europe, opportunity for many countries around the world that produce advanced defense technology now to go after new markets, to make sure we're not only selling the high end, we're selling the middle and the low end as well. Uh, I would think if I was a consumer right now of Russian technology, I would want to make sure that I have diversity because we're seeing, we will see a problem uh, for Russia's customers in securing reliable supplies. Absolutely. Uh, with the Chinese Communist Party on their border uh, and, and with the recent aggression we've seen towards uh, uh, the Indian government and, and its people, I agree with that uh, assessment and I also see an opportunity. I'll, I'll yield back to the chairman right now. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Assistant Secretary Liu. Thank you for being here this afternoon. I, I want to continue the discussion about the relationship between India and Russia because uh, I, was, I have been disappointed. Uh, I recognize the, the, the weapons connection that has been discussed, but I didn't think that that also covered values. India's of the world's largest democracy. And so I had hoped that India would side with the rest of the world's democracies in support of Ukraine in this um, current war on Ukraine that Russia is waging. And so I was really disappointed to see India abstain and sit on the sidelines at the UN rather than weighing in in support of Ukraine as the rest of the world's democracies did. So can you speak to that a little bit? Senator Shaheen, wonderful to see you again today. Um, I want to describe a pitch battle we've been having. Um, um, Secretary Blinken has been on the front lines of that battle. The president, 
Uh, other senior officials in the State Department have been relentlessly conducting um, a very serious high-level dialogue with our Indian counterparts over Ukraine over, this, over the course of months now, but culminating in this past week. We can already see an evolution in some of India's public position. I'll describe that. But maybe first I'll say um, I had several conversations with Indian officials in the last 24 hours. You may know um, yesterday an Indian student was killed in the Russian bombing right. of Kharkiv. And what we can see already very quickly is that action has begun to turn public opinion in India against uh, a country they perceived as a partner. Undeniably, that partner has just killed an Indian young person um, who was an innocent victim um, in Ukraine. Let me uh, say that all of us have been working to urge India to take a clear position, a position opposed to Russia's actions. But what have we seen so far? We've seen a number of abstentions. Um, we have seen this interesting evolution just in the past couple of days. So you may have seen yesterday, uh, the Indian government said it would send a humanitarian airlift of humanitarian supplies from India to Ukraine. That's important. That's a request of, that's coming from Ukraine's leadership. Second, it said in a, a UN session that it called for all states to abide by the UN Charter, to respect sovereignty and ter the territorial integrity of other states. That wasn't criticism of Russia, but a very clear uh, reference to Russia's violation of the UN Charter and violation of Ukraine's sovereignty. So we're making small steps, Senator Shaheen. Um, I assure you we are on this and working every day to make sure that we're trying to close the gap between where we are and where our Indian partners are. Well, thank you. I appreciate all of our, all of the State Department's diplomatic efforts in this regard. And again, it seems to me that India should be on notice that this is a time when it should stand up for its values and um, that an important value in a democracy is that you don't wage war on other sovereign nations. So I hope that it's paying attention and um, will continue to listen to the diplomatic overtures that are underway. Um, I want to switch topics a little bit because um, one of the concerns that has come to the fore in India in the last several years has been the plight of women. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you and USAID are working to address the rights of women in India and also to improve access to family planning, which is a concern in a country, um, which has been a concern in India. Senator Shaheen, um, I uh, last worked in India about a decade ago, and during that assignment, um, there was this terrible case of rape and murder that you may remember. This young um, student, she was a physiotherapy student, got boarded a bus in New Delhi, and um, she was then raped and assaulted and died of her injuries a yes, few days later. Yes, I remember that. Uh, her, she, in, in the press, they called her Nirbhaya. It, mean, it is an Indian word, Hindi word for fearless one, but it galvanized the whole country uh, to recognize that its laws were weak, 
and that uh, its enforcement of those laws were even weaker on uh, questions of gender-based violence. Uh, I saw 100,000 people, men, women, young people, old people, pour into the streets of New Delhi and demand that their government make change. Um, the laws were passed within a week. Uh, it is, to me, a sign that democracy really works in India, that the people have a voice, and the people won't put up with uh, this sort of violation of rights. Um, I had a chance to meet with the family of that young woman. Um, Secretary of State at the time awarded her posthumously the International Woman of Courage Award, and we had the opportunity to present it to her. Uh, this issue of gender-based violence is very close to my heart and the heart of my family. Uh, we're doing a couple of important things right now in Mission India. One is that we have dedicated programs to advance women's safety and empowerment, and those include law enforcement programming and broader public outreach to counter gender-based violence. But one of the new exciting things that Samantha Power announced when she visited India earlier um, at the end of last year was a public-private partnership between USAID, the State Department, um, the Indian private sector, academia, and civil society that is called the U.S.-India Alliance for Women's Economic Empowerment. I was just out in Silicon Valley meeting with uh, business leaders to talk about how they can get involved. Uh, the, the goal of this is to figure out how we catalyze um, our civil society, their civil society, all of our governmental efforts to support the rise of women in India. Uh, so many new businesses are women-owned businesses, and yet they lack the resources, the financing, the mentorship that their male counterparts have. One of the goals of this alliance is to mentor a million Indian women. Uh, we've got a commitment for 100,000 at this point, and we're moving very quickly towards a million. Thank you. Thank you. Can I just do a follow-up, Mr. Chairman? Um, I, I, I appreciate that, and I was heartened to see the reaction among the Indian people to that horrific um, and tragic killing. I want to just follow up on the family planning aspect of that question, um, because India has a long history of family planning programming, um, but it's struggled to, um, to make modern contraception available um, countrywide to families. So can you talk about whether we're doing anything in that sphere to um, help support their efforts? Senator, uh, my... Um Experience with that issue goes back a decade. So what I want to do, if you'll allow me, is to make sure I have the most up-to-date information so I'm giving you the straight facts and not a story from 10 years ago. So if I can take that as a, a taken question, we will get you a clear and uh, precise picture of what we're doing on family planning. Thank you. I'd appreciate it. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Liu, welcome. India and America, I believe, are natural friends and natural allies. India is the world's largest democracy. We share values. Under President Trump, our countries moved together significantly. We saw a significant uh, closening of the relations between the two countries. I traveled to India in 2019. Uh, I had the privilege of welcoming Prime Minister Modi uh, to Texas, to my hometown of Houston, when he came to the United States. In the past year, under the Biden administration, relations with India have worsened significantly. 
as was manifested, among other things, in their latest abstention at the United Nations on the issue of Russia and Ukraine. Assistant Secretary Liu, why is that? What mistakes has the Biden administration made to cause the relationship between our nation and the nation of India to deteriorate over the last 14 months? Thank you, Senator Cruz. Um, I will acknowledge that India and the United States have not voted the same at the United Nations over this past week. I assure you that we continue to have an important dialogue with India at the highest levels to try to narrow that gap and to help India to see the importance that we place on a coordinated message to Moscow. L let me um, say, though, that in our outreach to India, we have not failed to try to leverage India's relationship with Russia to try to call for a Russian withdrawal and a ceasefire. That um, in the days immediately following the um, Russian invasion, we have uh, been in touch with Indian leaders and Prime Minister Modi called both President Putin and President Zelensky to call for an end to the fighting. In addition, we are asking for India to do more. And as well, I mentioned- Well, well Mr. Luke, the, the, the problem is I recognize you're asking them to do more, but, but the relationship keeps getting worse. And, and one of the aspects that has driven that, India is a critical part of the security architecture that coalesced during the Trump administration against China. Countering China's aggressive behavior requires viable partners in Asia and beyond, and the U.S.-India relationship is a cornerstone of our multilateral efforts. As you know, and as we've discussed, our efforts to counter China were institutionalized in recent years in the Quad framework. But under the Biden administration, the security dimensions of the Quad have been significantly deprioritized in favor of other priorities such as climate change and developmental assistance. Meetings in March and in September emphasized those issues at the expense of countering China. The Quad statement from March emphasized climate change but didn't even mention China. Candidly, I'm worried that these moves about these moves, and I'm, I've also heard from regional partners that they're also worried about these moves. Why has the Biden administration shifted the focus of the Quad to issues like climate and away from vital national security interest, and in particular, why has the Biden administration pivoted the Quad away from countering communist China? Senator, um one thing I will agree about your statement is that one of the key ways that we will help our Indian partners to become more aligned with uh, the world's position towards um, condemning Russia's actions in Ukraine is by making sure we continue to talk about the Russia-China nexus. This is critical in terms of India's interests. It's critical in terms of our interests. Um, I, I completely agree that um, part of the answer here is that India understand what's happening in Ukraine will affect okay, Mr. Liu, behavior. You're a talented diplomat, and, and so you know that you're not answering the question I asked. And, and I look forward to answering that question. So I was at the Quad Ministerial in Melbourne. Um, I saw our cooperation on defense and security. Uh, that includes 
serious discussion and an action plan on growing interoperability, on intelligence sharing, um, discussion of sale, say, uh, the sale of advanced U.S. defense technology, complex multi-service uh, exercises between our militaries, including now our quad partners of Japan and Australia. So, so Mr. Liu, let me try one more time. Why has the Biden administration significantly deprioritized countering communist China in the Quad? Um, I sat in on every session of the Quad discussions, and in every session of those discussions, we, together with our three Quad partners, were talking about countering China. We were talking about China, countering China with security and defense activities. We were also talking about China, countering China with COVID vaccines, as we know that this is part of China's uh, reach into the Indo-Pacific. So I, I take exception to that statement. I, that is not what I witnessed in Melbourne. Well, it's what the public record indicates, and, and I will say your efforts with respect to India, they are not working, and they are harming America's relationship with India to the detriment of both countries. Thank you, Senator Cruz. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Senator Shaheen. Ambassador Liu, it's good to see you. I want to pick up where Senator Shaheen and some of my colleagues have uh, left off, which is expressing extreme disappointment in India's decision to abstain on the vote to condemn unprovoked aggression in violation of Ukraine's sovereignty, an attack on a democratic country. As you well know, India is the most populous democratic country in the world. And you would think this would be a moment that India would stand up in support of the people of Ukraine. So I'd like to ask you what efforts were undertaken by you and the secretary and at what level to persuade India to vote with 141 other countries in the world to condemn the attack on Ukraine. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Wonderful to see you today. Uh, we have uh, spared no effort to try to convince India uh, both to vote in uh, UN sessions, but also to show support for Ukraine at this critical moment. Um, those efforts were led by Secretary Blinken. He has multiple, multiple times been on the phone with uh, Minister Jai Shankar. So Ambassador Lum, let me, if you could, because um, I, I, I heard your testimony about the humanitarian assistance and other things. Let me ask it a little different way. What, what was India's rationale when Secretary Blinken said, vote with us to condemn this violation of sovereignty? What was the response from the Indian foreign minister? Thank you. Um, India has focused on two things when trying to explain its position. One, that it continues to want to leave on the table the possibility of a, of a diplomatic resolution of this conflict. And as we have said, that looks more and more unlikely as the Russian troops continue to pound civilian targets in Ukraine. But this remains their public position. It remains what we hear from them in private. The second thing that they emphasize is that India has 18,000 students uh, still in Ukraine, and they are trying to work with both the government of Ukraine and with the government of Russia to safeguard those well, students. Well, I would, I would think if they were concerned about their students, as we're concerned about Absolutely. our students, that, that all the more reason to vote to condemn 
unprovoked aggression. Now, um, let me ask you about the, the CATSA sanctions, uh, because I'm one of those who was very open uh, to the idea that we might want to consider a waiver for India to the CATSA uh, sanctions. I, I thought there were good arguments. I, I think it's clear that CATSA covers the India's planned purchase of S-400. So then the question was going to be uh, whether or not a waiver is granted. Will this, will this vote by India in any way impact uh, the administration's consideration of whether or not India should be uh, covered by CATSA? Senator, maybe I could just restate, I think it's going to be very hard for any country on the globe to buy major weapon systems from India because of the sweeping sanctions now placed on Russian banks. What we've seen from India in just the last few weeks um, is the cancellation of MiG-29 orders, Russian helicopter orders, and anti-tank uh, weapon orders. I, I can assure you that the administration will follow, um, follow the CATSA law and fully implement that law and will consult with the Congress as we move forward with any of the decisions. But will this be a fact? Look, you just have had Russia, obviously, invading Ukraine, and these are S-400s, a major um, air defense system. Uh, will this be a factor in the administration's consideration of whether or not to waive CATSA? What, unfortunately, I, I am not able to say is, uh, is to prejudge the decisions of the president or the secretary on, on the waiver issue or on the sanction issue or whether Russia's invasion of Ukraine will bear on that decision. What I can say is that uh, India is a really important security partner of ours now, yeah. and that we, we value moving forward in that partnership. And I hope that um, part of what happens with the extreme criticism that Russia has faced is that India will find it's now time to further distance itself. Right, well, Including Mr. Master, the... ev evolution, which is the phrase you, you use for India's sort of progression on this issue, moves very slowly. In my final sure. seconds here, if I could ask you, there are two other countries in your jurisdiction under South Asia, obviously you have the, the stands as well, uh, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, that also voted to abstain uh, from this vote. Uh, can you talk briefly about your disappointment in those decisions and what efforts were made uh, with respect to those countries? I was on the phone at 6 o'clock last night speaking to the uh, Sri Lankan ambassador here. My colleague in the bureau was on the phone with the uh, Indian DCM. We have worked very hard, I'm sorry, with the Pakistani DCM, <coughs> to try to convince them to vote uh, in favor of this resolution. Um, what's it is disappointing how many countries have abstained. I would also look to how many countries can I Can I just ask, favor. Mr. Ambassador, did, did anybody in the administration pick up the phone and call the Pakistani foreign minister or the prime minister of, uh, of Pakistan? And no, as, as you know, our, our charge has met recently with the Pakistani foreign minister, but um, on this, as, on, as, on as this topic, know, no, on this, Mr. on this topic, uh, on votes in the UN. On the Ukraine vote? On, the Ukra on Ukraine votes, not specific to the UN General Assembly vote. But as you may know, Prime Minister Khan has recently uh, visited Moscow, and so I, I think uh, we're trying to figure out how to engage specific specifically with the Prime Minister following that decision. 
Well, as you know, the uh, there was a meeting uh, with, with, in in Delhi with with the with the Russians as well. I, the point is, we need a strong, concerted effort with respect to all of these countries: Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and India. I understand that you you made some efforts. Thank you, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ambassador Liu. It's good to be with you today. Uh, I'd like to talk with you first about Taiwan, if I might. Um, in the Quad Leaders Joint Statement from back in March of 2021, they talked about a shared vision based on rule of law, democratic values, respect for territorial integrity of states. And while they didn't mention Taiwan specifically, I've got to believe that Taiwan security would remain crucial to the perspective of all of the Quad members. And as a member of the Quad, I think India can play a very important and critical role um, in, in Taiwan security, particularly on the economic dimension. Uh, in India and Taiwan have actually started discussions to create a semiconductor manufacturing hub. This is designed to meet growing demand in India. Uh, I think it has a great opportunity to deepen economic ties. And I think that the United States should be supportive of cooperation between our allies like India and Taiwan. And I was hoping that you might give me an update on the latest re with respect to um, India's engagements uh, on economic ties with Taiwan, if you might. Thank you, Senator. Um, this was in, indeed discussed during the Quad meetings in Australia. Uh, we are very focused on critical um, supplies like semiconductors and looking for ways that we can partner not only between the four Quad countries, but we can have partnerships beyond the Quad to other key partners uh, when we think of sem semiconductors, we absolutely think of Taiwan, we think of Singapore, um, South Korea. Uh, there are natural partnerships to be had there. Uh, India has, at the level of prime minister, signaled a desire to be a powerhouse in semiconductors for the same reason that Taiwan is able to produce these very sophisticated pieces of equipment. India has those same attributes, a very talented, workforce, highly educated. India graduates a million engineers <coughs> every year. We graduate 70,000. Uh, India has relatively low labor costs. All these things suggest India could be successful in this. I have also seen that India is exploring closer relationships with Taiwan. As you know, India is a naval power. It has one of the yep. longest coastlines of any country in the world. They have historically a very powerful navy we have seen the Indian Navy sail into the Taiwan Straits. Mm -hmm. I think that's symbolically very important at a time when we all are looking to provide reassurance to Taiwan about their security. I, I couldn't agree more. Freedom of navigation is critical to the region. India can play an important role there. And I appreciate everything that you can do, you are doing, and that you will continue to do to help facilitate deeper economic ties. I'd like to stay on Taiwan, but turn to a different perspective now. And that has to do with China. I'm certain that China is watching very closely what's happening in Ukraine right now. I'm sure they're watching with an eye toward what that might mean for their uh, intentions with respect to Taiwan. I fear that Xi Jinping may be drawing all the wrong lessons from what he's seeing take place there. And I think it's absolutely critical that we work with our Quad partners to deter China and to uh, prevent them from any adverse undertaking uh, toward Taiwan. I understand that India may not want to be militarily involved, but can you take me through uh, how you're thinking about how India could be helpful to us 
in deterring China from taking an adverse move toward Taiwan? Well, uh, maybe I'll start with what we're doing to support India at the line of actual control and then move to what the Quad is doing to support um, countries throughout the Indo-Pacific, but including Taiwan. So you may know we have been working very actively with India in the last two years to safeguard their sovereignty after provocations by the Chinese along the Indian border. Uh, we are looking very closely at the talks that the Chinese and the Indians are having along that border. Um, our policy is to support direct dialogue, but what we're seeing is that the PRC has shown no sign of any sincere efforts at de-escalating the situation, and we see a clear pattern. Uh, a clear pattern not only with the Indians, but with other neighbors of the PRC attempting to intimidate its neighbors, and it's a time when we need to stand by our Indian partners. As concerns the Quad and security, um, all four countries are committed to working on the security of the Indo-Pacific. And that means interoperability of our militaries. That means intelligence sharing between our four countries, but also beyond those four countries with other partners in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the transfer and sale of advanced US and other quad country technologies in the defense field, so we are properly armed for this new challenge. Complex multi-service exercises, Tiger Triumph is an exercise we do every year with India that has some of our most elite forces working with Indian forces. And the Malabar exercises have not only the United States and India, it now has Japan and Australia participating annually in a major naval exercise that must have the Chinese going crazy. And I believe we're going to see more of that going forward, particularly with what's happening with Ukraine. I can only encourage you to keep that up. I've had the benefit of witnessing the Yamasakura exercises year over year. I've seen the increased competence that that delivers. I think we should continue joint exercises. I would encourage you to do everything you can to continue to streamline the FMS, the foreign military sales process, so that we can become more interoperable. We will do everything we can here to help in that process, but it's a big process. It's far too big from my perspective in terms of the number of bureaucratic entities that touch the FMS process, but it's critical, particularly given the speed and rate of technology development right now, that we figure out how to compress the time and speed that up. And finally, I would encourage you, I just had a meeting with the South Korean ambassador to the United States. They can play an important role too. So as I think of the Quad, I think as you might as well, uh, we need to think about our allies broadly in the region and South Korea can play a role. Completely agree, thank you, Senator. Thank you, thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much, Senator uh, Haggerty. Um, we'll begin a round of uh, another round of questions. I know there may be a member or two uh, arriving or joining via uh, the web. Um, let me begin on the topic of climate. Um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report earlier this week which spelled out in pretty harrowing terms how India is going to face the devastating impacts of climate change sooner and more harshly than other parts of the world. Uh, water scarcity, uh, in particular from rivers that are relied upon for, as water sources drying up, flooding threats uh, from uh, glacier lake melt, hotter summers that are going to come with it, pretty significant health consequences to populations. Um, this is a big topic, um, but let me maybe 
drill down on the feasibility of the commitments that India has made already. I mentioned that they, they made a significant commitment uh, at the Scotland conference. They've also committed to reach 500 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030. Um, how feasible are the commitments that they've made? What help do they need from the United States in order to get there? Thank you, Senator. Um, the f commitments are not feasible at all if they don't get the help of the whole world. And I think Prime Minister Modi knows that. He has thrown on the table this concept of India having 500 gigawatts of installed non-fossil fuel clean energy. And he knows they're on track to do that. They're not even close to being on track. The only way they get to do that is if the whole world gathers together to provide the technology and the financing for, uh, for India's search for cleaner sources of fuel. Um, I, uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman uses this term all the time with respect to India. It's going to be the biggest everything. By 2030, as you suggested, the biggest population, it's also going to have the, potentially be the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases unless we do something now. This is like, you know, if we could have caught China 20 years ago before its big surge in growth, you know, what would the climate picture look like today? Very different. So we are doing several things in the administration. President Biden announced the Agenda 2030 uh, Climate Action Program, which has two parts. One of those parts is led by the Secretary of Energy with her counterpart in India, and that's focused on the technology, making sure India has access to the latest green technologies so that it, it can efficiently and in a cost-effective way move to a greener energy future. And the second part is John Kerry's part which is on finance mobilization. John Kerry is looking for the money all around the world. It's not just American money. It's money from international financial institutions, from the EU, from everywhere to make sure that this um, climate miracle in India is possible and it's financed and it's realistic. Let me just ask a follow-up question on finance. Um, I assume this is some mixture of subsidy and creative finance. Uh, one thing, you know, I'm greatly frustrated at is the artificial limits that we put on U.S. international development finance, especially in the area of renewable energy. I assume that India's system is so inefficient that there is a mechanism by which to gain something on climate with a return to the investors that are putting in money. So is this a a question of, of subsidy, or is this a question of trying to come up with some creative finance vehicles for renewable installation? It's, it's absolutely going to have to be based upon uh, return on investment. Um, uh, we have taken the lead. Ours is the first major investment of what we hope is a whole series of international investments in clean energy. So the Development Finance Corporation just announced in December half a billion dollars for a U.S. company called First Solar to create uh, a solar farm in Chennai, in the south of India, that will fuel huge cities across the south of the country. It's, it'll be the biggest solar farm you've ever seen, and it's going to make money. We know that right now. We've looked at the books. We looked at the business plan. DFC will get its money back with interest, and that's how we're going to have to do this. No one's asking for handouts from the world. We're asking banks to provide money that will be returned with 
returns on investment because we can see that's possible given the tremendous demand for energy in India. And there's obviously a tremendous possibility for the expansion of manufacturing and assembly in India of renewable technology. China saw this train coming and made the investment early on. Um, India is playing catch-up, but it's certainly a win-win for India in the long run to be able to uh, reduce their emissions while also making a, a lot of this um, uh, domestically. Let me um, quickly turn uh, to some uh, domestic political topics. Um, as I mentioned, we've got to be honest about our points of disagreement. Um, uh, there was a report recently that Prime Minister Modi used um, this NSO spyware to target a range of his political opponents and perceived critics, including his top uh, rival, Rahul Gandhi. Um, the United States has added NSO to what we call our entity list uh, for engaging in activities that are contrary to our national security interests. Um, have we raised concerns with the Modi government about their use of this spyware? And what is this alleged weaponization of spyware against uh, the prime minister's political opponents tell us about the state of democracy and political competition in India? Senator, uh, I think much of that controversy when it was in the front pages uh, happened before my time in the Bureau. So I am aware of lots of issues we are raising in terms of digital trade, digital economy. On the specific issue of the spyware, if you'll allow me to take that back as a taken question, we will get you exactly the answer of who raised it, in what context, on which dates. Uh, I, I'm confident it has been raised, but I couldn't give you the details today. If it would be helpful, I'd be able to talk about digital economy and what we're doing on that score. Well, I, I guess my, my, my predicate was a lead into a broader conversation about the state of political competition uh, in, uh, in India today. Again, uh, India is the world's largest democracy. Uh, our, our interests in aligning with India are certainly tied to our mutual security interests, but also uh, our mutual values. And so maybe a, a word on the, the, the state of political competition, um, the, the, the health of uh, electoral <laughs> democracy in India today. So I'm a political officer by training. What I have done for 30 years is go into embassies and report on politics. Uh, India is politics as it was meant to be. It's a blood sport. Um, they are uh, ruthless in their uh, politics. We're just ending now a series of um, local elections in India. One of the great things about Indian democracy is, uh, despite the fact that it's winner take all between political parties, the electoral system, the biggest in the world, is able to function so efficiently and without any um, sense of uh, a challenge to the legitimacy of this massive system that operates around the country, including in places like Kashmir and the nor Northeast that have had security problems. So one of the great things that I feel confident about the, uh, as someone who spent a lot of time in India is that the electoral system itself is very strong. Is there a lot of political competition today? I think we're gonna see in the election returns that come out in March later this month that, um, that uh, um, the current ruling coalition uh, retains a lot of authority 
in India. Uh, we'll see. The returns are largely in at this point. They have rolling elections, but um, Prime Minister Modi and his party appear to me as an observer from the outside to retain a lot of uh, support within the country. And let me just ask one final follow-up, and do you attribute that uh, to the organic popularity of the ruling party, or are there tactics utilized? And again, I'm referencing one that maybe predates your time, but are there tactics utilized um, by the governing party to achieve such popularity that would be outside the bounds of norms in the United States? I have uh, served overseas for almost 30 years. I have seen some terrible elections in parts of the globe. I've never seen that in India, honestly. I haven't seen the kind of dirty tricks and the stealing of elections and the use of anti-democratic tools that I have seen in many, many places that I have served. It doesn't mean they don't exist. Maybe they're just better at hiding them, but I don't see that. What I see today, uh, having lived in India under Congress Party rule, under BJP rule, is today I think the Congress Party is really trying to find its identity again. I think it's searching for its um, appropriate leaders and its message to the Indian public, and I think until the Congress Party is able to do that, it's going to be very hard for the opposition to coalesce uh, and to reform. Senator Young. Assistant Secretary, is, is you discuss all the reasons why uh, we, we might believe that, that India will come to play an increasingly important global role uh, in, in the 21st century, from the many highly educated graduates of, of uh, top STEM programs to uh, it, its, its massive and, and growing population to its strategic location. Um, I become hopeful uh, about the possibilities that might exist as we partner increasingly with uh, the Indian people. Uh, I think about the Quad and how it might potentially become a venue for partnering uh, in some areas that uh, uh, have not historically been areas of partnership between the United States and, and India, uh, broaden expanded defense partnerships, intel sharing, log logistical cooperation. I think about uh, our, our joint efforts to police you know, the waters and, and prevent illegal uh, fishing. And, and if time permits, I'd like to get into some of that. But much of today has understandably and rightly been focused on this here and now situation. The Indian government, its response or lack thereof uh, to Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And I'm still trying to disentangle a number of different factors that might be responsible for India's seemingly weak reaction. I think by most accounts, a, a fairly weak reaction. I'm trying to be empathetic. Is it institutional stasis? So do, do we have either a, you know, a, a structure or a culture of government challenge in getting uh, government to be responsive? Uh, are there particular bureaucrats or, or government officials who personally are resisting any sort of change? Is there an ideological resistance uh, to change? Uh, maybe, maybe the years of, of being a non-aligned power uh, can be cited, and, and uh, perhaps after a period of time that's become a tradition, not 
critically reviewed during moments of crisis? Is it an issue of self-interest? So I've given you three potential uh, factors that you can weight them as you choose. Maybe there are other factors, but is it an institutional stasis? Is it an ideological resistance? Are there perhaps some factors of self-interest that we haven't, we haven't yet accounted for? Because I can't see self-interest driving India to resist speaking with a louder voice, acting more boldly in concert with others in the West against this aggressive action. It seems to be, it runs afoul of their self-interest. You've said it yourself. In the future, this country, which is highly dependent on Russia for weapon systems, won't be able to procure weapons. So this is, is seemingly, you know, it, it's, it, it's antithetical to the self-interest of, of India. What am I missing? Senator, I, I completely agree with everything you just said. Um, I agree that India's position today is one that looks like uh, a decision that India would have taken decades ago. Having said that, when I sit here in Washington, it looks like a pro-Russian position that they've taken. They are quick to try to paint this as a decision that is neither pro-Russian nor, nor pro-Ukrainian or pro-NATO. Um, I don't personally believe this is an ideological difference. Uh, I had the honor of being part of the meeting that Prime Minister Modi had with President Biden in September. You couldn't have seen two leaders that saw closer, a closer vision of the world, not only our bilateral relations, but how we view China and the rest of the planet. We have really common interests today with India. What I do see is what you just said, which is there are some narrow self-interests that I believe are motivating the short-term thinking of our Indian colleagues. We've talked about many of them. You just mentioned uh, reliance on spare parts and defense equipment, ammunition, like very simple things to put in their legacy uh, defense hardware that they still have that protects the border with China and other key infrastructure. 18,000 students. Uh, I, I just spent almost two hours with the Indian ambassador yesterday. We spent almost the entire time talking about Ukraine. I know a lot about the Indian students there and what they're facing. Not only the dangers from falling Russian bombs, but um, the, the sense that they're having a hard time getting out because of um, perceived lack of welcomeness now in Ukraine. Uh, and then uh, India has maintained that it wants not to take either side because it wants to be uh, a partner that's trying to work towards a diplomatic solution. We have seen them make the right phone calls that suggest they are serious about that. Unfortunately, they have not yet been effective in doing so. If I, I, I'm just going to pick up on some of those narrow areas of self-interest that you've helpfully enumerated for me. Ammunition for weapon systems. It wouldn't surprise me if, if, if we were to inventory system by system uh, their need for, for uh, ammo uh, uh, to, to continue to supply those weapon systems. If indeed that's the narrow category we're talking about, the United States uh, could either, uh, through our defense enterprise uh, or, or working with partners and allies, be able to, at least in fairly short order, come up with alternative sourcing. Uh, mechanisms for the Indian government, Indian students, and, and the ability to get them out of the country. We could partner with the Indian government conceivably. I mean, 
historically, we've been pretty good at this. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, each of these other areas, it, it seems like we, we could work together uh, with our government. So maybe you've just uh, inadvertently or intentionally uh, publicly articulated some of the areas that they perceive to be in their short-term self-interest that we, we, could, we, could, we could mitigate any risk they might be feeling. The last one you, you mentioned was, um, and, and I'll say, say it less delicately than you have, uh, sir, uh, I think they're trying to pick the, the winning side. Uh, that may be a bit of, of the concern of some of them in their, in their government. And we need to demonstrate uh, our firm resolve and unity so that uh, they understand that uh, we're not going away. We're going to stand with the Ukrainian people and, and uh, make Vladimir Putin's life hell uh, in, in coming years. So um, uh, it appears I am well over my time, how quickly it goes. So I'm, I'm going to yield back to the chairman. Uh, thank you. I, I, um, it's interesting how many, how many potential interlocutors there are today between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Lots of nations that are remaining neutral appear to be very interested in justifying that position based on their interest to try to play, uh, play a mediating role. Um, I have one last question. I don't think we can do this hearing without an update on Kashmir. Oh, um, great. Uh, so... Um, I mentioned it in my opening remarks, uh, Prime Minister Modi had um, you know, suggested that there would be uh, progress, that the people of Kashmir would have an opportunity to um, have a say in their future, that there would be elections. Um, continues to be one of the most heavily militarized places in the world. You still have lethal clashes. Um, tell us uh, a, a little bit about the, the way forward in 2022 for Kashmir and what uh, the United States is doing uh, to try to bring that voice to the people of Kashmir. So, Senator, I uh, spent uh, my wasted youth as a reporting officer in New Delhi covering Kashmir in the late 90s and uh, had the opportunity to travel there eight times, including during the Cargill War when the Indians and Pakistanis were facing off on a glacier at 15,000 feet. Uh, it's an important issue for all of us. Yes, I think um, a lot of promises have been made. Some have been kept, both by Pakistan and India. I, I can summarize those that are kept and those that are remaining to be fulfilled. Uh, we do see the Indian government taking some steps to restore normalcy. Prime Minister uh, had outreach to a range of Kashmiri Indian politicians uh, in June. Uh, we saw uh, visits by cabinet ministers to Kashmir in September. And during that same time, we saw the rest, re uh, restoration of 4G connections for cell phones, which is the way most people get their information uh, in the Kashmir Valley. We are keeping a close eye on the security situation, including terrorist threats. What I can tell you is cross-border insurgency has really gone down over two years. And um, I have been in meetings with General Bajwa in Pakistan in which uh, they have taken credit for closing off that border for militant groups. Those militant groups themselves, as you suggest, haven't gone away entirely but they have sealed the border in a way we haven't seen before. And I think that's a positive thing, and I think that's partly a reflection of uh, encouragement by FATF, encouraging, encouragement by Washington, and other partners of Pakistan. But uh, just to go back to the human rights situation, we see troubling remaining work. Uh, as you suggested, we have not seen 
the holding of legislative assembly elections in Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, we have not seen free movement of journalists. We've seen the detention, in fact, of some prominent journalists in the Kashmir Valley. We believe all Kashmiris deserve the right to live in dignity and enjoy the protections afforded to them by the Indian Constitution. Uh, we look forward to continuing to encourage uh, India to fulfill those commitments. Assistant Secretary, uh, I mentioned the Quad earlier. How might it be expanded as, as we look to uh, the future to include some of the missions that I, I mentioned? Defense, intel, logistical cooperation, how might we expand uh, our cooperation on, on those fronts so that uh, the Quad doesn't lose its ability to remain nimble? That's one of the advantages of, of the Quad as opposed to a formal defense alliance. Uh, but uh, it, it, it will still meet uh, the, the many needs of members and non-members moving forward. I would argue that we are working in each of those areas right now, though we may not be publicly working in those areas. Certainly in logistics, we are very explicitly working on supply chain issues in all of our countries and throughout Asia with partners. Um, in terms of defense, uh, we are working uh, to coordinate the actions of our navies on the high seas, both in the Quad and parallel to the Quad, meaning the four countries not in, with the Quad hats on, but working together. Uh, so that's happening, whatever you call it, we're doing that today. Uh, on the intelligence, on the sharing of information side, uh, every day we're finding new ways to share critical security information with each other. But I think one of the things to look for in the years ahead is how will the Quad grow? Not maybe grow into five or six or seven members, but how will we then rope in Taiwan that was discussed earlier today by Senator Haggerty? How will we rope in Singapore? How will we rope in North Korea? Yes, how? So the, the idea currently on the table um, from the United States is that we have a series of working groups. So you have the ministerial level, you have the presidential prime ministerial level, but then each of them have working groups. It's a blinding amount of work for all of us. I think we're up to 20 different groups that are meeting constantly. The idea is to work in those partners at the working group level. And maybe one day there'll be an appetite to increase the number of actual quad members, but we can already see that it makes sense if we're talking about supply lines, it's not just the four of us, but it should be six or eight or 12 of us in Asia working on supply lines. We, we're working on cyberspace. You know, there are key cyber um, actors in Asia that are not in the quad. We should get those folks knitted up with the working group. And we've seen real interest by uh, South Korea, by Taiwan, by Singapore to be part of those groups. Well, this is fantastic. So is it the intention of the working groups to be, um, you know, always updating their work within uh, the working groups, always always updating their plans, uh, assessing uh, the the common objectives and and, and goals, and and uh, figuring out what uh, what efforts uh, you know the participants might engage in to support one another. Correct. So the ministerial level meets twice a year. The leaders level meets once a year. But the groups are meeting constantly. You know, they should be meeting three or four times between ministerial level activities. They should define an agenda. They, they need to report out at the ministers' meetings what they accomplished. All of that is happening. So who are 
the U.S.'s representatives uh, so in those meetings? It depends on the topic. So, for example, if it has something to do with supply lines, it's the Commerce Department, it's USTR, it's the State Department, it's NSC. These are all interagency representatives. And, and related to that initiative, uh, is the Biden administration, perhaps through the working groups, uh, working to empower and encourage India uh, and, and other Quad members to serve as a more active enforcer of maritime security in the Indian Ocean? Is that also occurring through the working group uh, mechanism? I would say the opposite. I think India is asserting its leadership in the Indian Ocean on the high seas. It wants more technology to be able to, be, to do this job better, to find and track Chinese submarines, to uh, look for Chinese illegal fishing Understood. vessels. Uh, it's very much not us convincing India. India right. wants that role. So they have every incentive to do so. Uh, have they uh, either needed to or, or found benefit from working with our INL Bureau on, on this mission, perhaps in coordination with other relevant agencies like our Coast Guard? Absolutely. We are seeing new transit routes of narcotics in the Indian Ocean as a result of the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. And the Indian Navy, I was just at Western Naval Command in October, uh, they are tracking these vessels, but they figure they're missing some too, and they're looking at how can they cooperate more closely with us to make sure that heroin, those methamphetamines, are not being missed by the Indian Navy and are being picked up. So we, we are actively coordinating with our Indian partners on the high seas. Thank you, Mr. Liu. Chairman? I guess if the, if the Big Ten can have 14 members, then the, the quad <laughs> can have five or six. That's right. That's uh, the reason. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Assistant Secretary Liu, thank you very much for your testimony uh, today uh, by the fairly robust attendance um, at the subcommittee from members on both sides of the aisle. You can see how interested this committee is in, in the growing relationship between the United States uh, and India, and we thank you for your great work. Uh, members are going to be allowed to submit questions for the record until the close of business on Friday. And thanks to the subcommittee, this hearing is now adjourned.